Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Don't look at a boy jumping there. You're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash. All right? Cash, no. Robo? No cash. Swear to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to what? Merry Christmas, everybody, and welcome to The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, as the title suggests, we're going to be talking about the most merriest of merry Australian Christmas films, and that is John Hillcoat's The Proposition. <laughs> um, part of the reason why I've chosen The Proposition to discuss on this particular episode is because, for some strange, bizarre reason... Uh, we don't do Christmas films. We really don't. And this was kind of a spur of the moment thing where I thought, you know, after doing the episode on Sherpa, I was like, wow, it'd be nice to do an Australian Christmas film. And I did a bit of a search and uh, the the pickings were very, very slim. We've got a fair, we've got a few, which is Silent Night, Holy Night, which is an animated film produced by Hanna-Barbera uh, back in 1976. Uh, we've got A Christmas Carol, which was a made-for-TV film back in 1982. Um, going back all the way to 1947, we have Bush Christmas, uh, which stars the great Chips Rafferty, um, and it's basically about some kids in the bush and their Aboriginal friend celebrating Christmas. Uh, and then the most recent True Blue Aussie Christmas True film. Blue. True, True Blue. True Blue, mate. <laughs> True Blue Aussie Christmas film is Crackers from 1998. Uh, so that voice you hear is Bernadette, my co-host. So say hello and Merry Christmas. Ah, oh, Merry Christmas, True Blue. True Blue. I, I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, I was going to record this intro by myself, but I have a question for you uh, because we're, we're so heavily into Christmas. We love Christmas. Why do Australians not do Christmas films? think we don't do Christmas films. One, because they they tend to be family or comedy films and they're two films that genres that we don't given our small industry, I don't think we produce a lot of those in general. Mm-hmm. When you add to it that traditional Christmas films tend to take place where there's a white Christmas. Yeah. Um, or, you know, a lot of decoration and, you know, all that. I'm thinking of, like, you know, American Christmas carols and things like that. Yeah. We don't do that because it's super hot here <laughs> at Christmas. Well, as the proposition shows. Yes, it's... it is. Um, and, yeah, I just, I think we're a little bit Australian, as Australia as a culture is a little bit low-key about Christmas in some ways. Like, hmm. we're not, um, 
we're not as sort of bombastic about it all. We st- we're starting just like we've taken Halloween now as a fucking. You've got to get have candy now at Halloween yeah. because kids <laughs> come to your door. Never used to be that way. Um, yeah, I I just it's not it's not something that I think that our industry really embraces embraces yeah like it's not and and has the has the resources to produce i don't think and the thing is i think as well is that the american christmas films that do get released here they don't do very well as mm. it is I, not I, even the night before did well and that's no. you know a seth rogan comedy which they usually do quite well mm. um and not even that i think could really i felt i don't think it lasted as long as as a seth rogan comedy normally would no and I do. I also don't know if the like in America you get people who sit down and watch It's a Wonderful Life and that's on repeat and Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street and and things like that and they're all you know they're all on repeat endlessly in America. Home Alone, Die Hard, <laughs> you know those kinds of films and I guess there's that that nostalgia aspect of it, but it's also the the unity and the family yeah. of uniting people together and i just don't know if australians are really into that i guess the day that we do that is more like australia day for example and even then we don't have any films that cover australia day well there will be chris stenders has got a film called australia day coming out i believe on australia day next year Mm. um, which is going to be very interesting but it's just something that we don't we don't embrace all too much and I, I find that like strange. A, there's a, there's a well, I don't think it's strange at all. I think it's uh, it's that those two factors. Uh, you know, the films that we are producing are, you know, people. This might be one of their few shots to get a film made. Mm. To get a, so they're going to go for something that's meaty and and uh, you know maybe a bit raw or satiric. You know, something edgy. Yeah. When's the last edgy, interesting Christmas film that you saw? Well, The Proposition. Well, but that's the thing. It's not, you know, it depends what you classify as a Christmas film. Just because someone's wearing a Santa hat while he whips you to death or whatever. (laughs) I don't think that actually happens in the film. No, no, there's no Santa hat. But there is some decoration, isn't there? (laughs) There is, at the end, yes, during the climax, yeah. But the key is, with that particular film, and Mike goes into this in a little bit more detail when we discuss, is that it's about people wanting something and also giving and receiving something Mm. and it's interesting to look at the proposition in that particular way and i won't spoil what he compares the film to you just got to listen to the discussion um but it's interesting in that regard how Mm. some people will view those kinds of films but that is like the problem so i find it humorous that you picked the proposition because that's like the least christmasy film i could think it's one of the few films that i had real trouble watching like it's a very good film i and it's one of those films that when did it come out it's quite a while Two, ago 2005 now. it came 2005 out. so you know i was in my early 20s hmm. yes yeah yeah 21 or something yeah. um i don't know how old am i <laughs> who knows um it's that was when i was kind of you know really into i mean i'd always been into film yeah. but you know, you start studying film studies at uni and all that sort of stuff. And you kind of, it's the first time I remember there being like, oh, wow, this Australian film, this amazing score, all these creatives um, working in a genre that we don't see very often mm. 
recently anyway in Australian film and also that it did quite well overseas critically as well. It did, yes. And it launched, you know, an actor that, um, actor, sorry, a director that, that I launched but, you know, helped his career progress. Well, he, and it's something that I he'd can, been away for a while. Yeah, I continue to, you know, seek out his work. So mm. that, that sort of, that's what that film, it reminds me of that sort of, that um, shift in my film, you know, loving experience from just, you know, going to see see everything but not necessarily knowing much about the directors and all that sort of stuff um this this is that time there was that shift where i started looking for directors that you know i liked yeah things like that well part of the reason why i chose to a do an episode on the proposition and b release it on christmas day um is because i mean the proposition was on the list to be discussed eventually because it's it is a great australian film Mm. and the work of John Hillcote, especially his Australian stuff, which is Ghosts of the Civil Dead, he did another film, and then The Proposition. They're really powerful films. Mm. But the thing is, is that because of that that lack of Australian Christmas film, uh, Australian Christmas cinema specifically, this kind of feels like the best representation of it because it's such an anti-Christmas film. And... I guess in the way you know, Nick Cave and John Hilco didn't set out to ever make this a Christmas film, but no. the story that is presented here could only be presented at Christmas time. Yeah. Like it, it makes sense, and the whole crux of it is, you know, the the climax of it is based around Christmas, and that's a really frightening aspect. And it's taking something that is about unity and is about family and. Tearing it down and ruining it, and saying but it's also we about, reject those ideas. Yeah, mm. and it's also but it's also about opposing your beliefs and mm. ideas onto a different culture and onto a different people. Exactly, and that's you know something else that Christmas represents. If we're if we're trying to be political about it, you know, mm. which which echoes some of the themes you know within the film itself. Exactly. So that that's the reason why I chose this film. To, <laughs> to mm. discuss. Well, if you're going to watch it on Christmas Day, make sure you're a little bit tipsy because it's. I don't know. It's it's not necessarily uber violent. I mean, it's very, it is very violent, but I've seen I've seen more violent films. I think it's the way the violence is is portrayed. I find it quite well, it's cha- unexpected, it's, and I find it really challenging to finish watching yeah. this movie. I've watched it a couple of times. Well, and, there's two um, scenes in particular. Yeah. When I rewatched it the other night, I had to stop it at the the yeah. whipping scene oh, yeah, because you said I don't think I can be in the room for this. Yeah, and that feel, that scene is really hard to watch. But then, again, it's the climax, which is equally difficult to watch. But it works so well, and it's such a great, great film. So that's why... Normally, I wouldn't make you turn the movie off, but I was feeling a bit... Not great that night, yeah. I was feeling a bit down, and then all of a sudden, he's like, I'm going to finish watching The Proposition. (laughs) And I've just gotten home from, you know, hard day at work, and that's the fucking scene that pops up. I'm like, turn it off. Yeah, no thank you. (laughs) But I just figured that at least, uh, because I know that there are a fair few people who are fans of this film and who have put in requests for us to cover this film, so hence why it's appearing in your feed. Um, And I figured at least, uh, you know, I I wasn't going to go into too much of a discussion about the success of the film and all that kind of stuff. Um, It had a budget of two million, box office of five million, Mm. did very, very well. Uh, again, Nick Cave wrote it. Uh, he is a great screenwriter. He's done some other scripts as well. Uh, I think around that time, uh, he also wrote the the sequel to Gladiator, which, of course, didn't get turned into a film. But he has acted in some films, uh, the aforementioned mm. Ghosts of the Civil Dead. He also has an appearance in um, 
uh, what's that film called? Assassination, Assassination of Jesse James. Yeah, Assassination of Jesse Ford. James. And, you know, he's also done, I think he did the script or worked on the script for uh, Lawless. I think he helped write that as well, um, which is, you know, his work. And if you're not familiar with him as a uh, musician, you really should be because he's, he's got some truly wonderful wonderful uh music to listen to so that alone is is great um but it's a it's a solid little film one last thing i want to mention as well before we head into the discussion is uh what is interesting about the proposition is that it's it's filmed and set in queensland uh, and in 2003 queensland uh brought into uh legislation i guess is the way of putting it um the aboriginal cultural heritage act so essentially it is a piece of legislation which helps people be informed about Aboriginal culture. So when they're making a film in Australia or specifically in Queensland, and I've had a look and other states do have something similar, but they don't enact it in the same way that Queensland does. Mm-hmm. And what they do is that they have people who work, like Aboriginals who work and help people who are trying to make uh, tell stories and make films or make art or TV or write books yeah. um, to be a reference point for um, for Aboriginal culture, and that certainly had a huge effect on this particular film because there were certain elements here that they they didn't get to they didn't know was going to be culturally insensitive and. Yes. I find that really interesting. It is, and it, and people might be like, oh, well, you know, can't you just research it yourself? The difference is that, and, and I think a lot of people make this mistake, and really I've only come to understand it because of my work in health. Hmm. We say the word, you know, Aboriginal or Indigenous people. It's Their culture is, there are so many um, variations within each sort of part of Australia so not only you know are you you're indigenous you're you're indigenous you're an aboriginal person you identify where were you born that makes a huge difference yes um so you know things that that are appropriate perhaps in you know um noongar land is completely and noongar land is is where we are based in in western australia so that that they are very you know and there there is even infighting you know do you Hmm. know what i mean like in terms of not infighting but you know there there are Things that would be, you know, offensive um, to, you know, a, a Noongar person to, and people, I'm not sure what um, the well, different lands areas. are called yeah. in Queensland, but yeah, there's, it's just so, it's so complex <laughs> well, that you really do, if you want to be respectful, which you should be, because we've already taken the land away from them. So if we're, <laughs> if we're going to try and, you know, make films where we're using part of their culture or, or their land or their characterization for entertainment let's at least get it fucking mm. right you know? and one of the things which john Hillcoat, and, and they're all sorry i should just mention but it's also you know it's something that you may see in australian films uh if there are people who are um of aboriginal, aboriginal descent who have passed away or torres strait islander torres strait islander yeah. and they're in the film you mm. know they often have a warning because that's well, specifically, I mean, this film opens yes, with, with, the, with, with photos the, of people who are dead or have passed away. So, yeah. yes, uh, because within Aboriginal culture, it's considered offensive and and hurtful to display pictures of the dead. Let's hope they don't see Rogue One. 
Yeah. <laughs> just, just in terms of... Well, I, yes. I'd say that in jest because Andrew was commenting about... Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the CGI performance in Rogue One of, yes. of someone who's passed away. Yeah, exactly, which is uh, <laughs> a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Yeah. But while making the proposition, John Hilko did come upon two specific circumstances that I'm aware of that uh, sort of challenged the way that he expected the, the film to be made. So one of them was the they were going to shoot in a certain area and the person who was providing them the in, the information about their uh, Aboriginal culture essentially said, well, I wouldn't shoot there because when a particular event occurred there hundreds of years ago where white people gathered up all of the Aboriginals in that area and pushed them over this cliff and they all died. And so if you film there, then it's kind of belittling yeah. that area as it is. And the lady, there's a special feature on the Australian DVD uh, that, that goes into a bit more detail, but essentially she says, you know, it's it's already hard enough that this area is a picnic area. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't don't film on it and, and make it into something else. So they shifted the location of where they were filming that. The other, the other element was as well is that David Gulpilil, who's a great Australian actor, uh, he's in this film, and in one of the scenes he has to translate... Uh, the dialogue from Captain Stanley, who's played by Ray Winstone, into the Aboriginal dialect. And the people, the four Aboriginal actors who he's talking to, don't speak the same language that David Gulpilil yes. does. So John Hillcote was like, mate, why you keep on mucking up your lines? And essentially it took until the end of the day for you know David to say, well, I don't speak the same language that these guys do, so yeah. when they're repeating something back to me, mm. I'm trying to understand it as but best again, as I like, can. But again, see what I'm saying? Like, it's that assumption that, oh, we use the term Aboriginal, mm. so they're all the same. Like, no, there's so much cultural variation um, and language, just like there, are, there is in Europe, and, you know, it's... Uh, I don't understand how people don't know that. Exactly. Anyway, I, don't, I don't understand I mean, I don't, obviously don't know the, the ins and outs of all the different types, but to, to be ignorant of that in general seems a bit... Yeah, it's a bit silly. And thankfully, you know, Nick Cave's script is very sensitive to that kind of thing. Mm. And, um, you know, it doesn't obviously paint the white people in a great light, no. but and their <laughs> actions against the Aboriginals aren't, aren't fantastic either. But it's very... From what I understand, it's very indicative of what that particular era is like. Mm. So that is the proposition. That's our short discussion on Christmas films. Um, next year, who knows? Maybe we'll do Crackers for Christmas. Yes. Who knows? Or maybe we'll do Chris Stender's uh, Boxing Day, yeah. which is a very devastating film about uh, families breaking up and yeah. and things like that great film really powerful film um so maybe in 2017 uh, if the year goes as equally to shit as 2016 did uh you'll hear boxing day on boxing day or you'll hear crackers on christmas yeah. um but yeah till then i <laughs> <laughs> uh, appreciate you guys listening to this episode on the proposition do you have any christmas wishes for people just have a merry christmas and safe and uh, don't drive drunk don't drive drunk Yes, so Merry throw Christmas, everybody. Throw a shrimp everybody. on the barbie, as they yeah. say. Yeah, throw, <laughs> do that. Um, so Merry Christmas, everybody. And if you're not listening to this on Christmas, I hope you have a lovely day anyway. Stick around yeah, and listen. We're a, bit of, we're a bit obnoxious thinking people are going to listen to our podcast on Christmas. Well. <laughs> if you are, though, 
think you rule because that's kind uh, of I what I prefer you to be doing on Christmas <laughs> Day. Not necessarily listening to our podcast, but uh, just, you know, chilling. Just well, maybe, maybe if movie, somebody... Uh, none of this family gatherings. Ugh. Well, maybe if somebody uploads their podcast feed on Christmas Day and they go... The proposition. I haven't seen that in a while. Maybe we'll watch that for, yeah. as a Christmas <laughs> film instead of Die Hard this year. Uh, so yeah, thank you again. Uh, stick around, listen to the discussion with Mike and I about the proposition. I suppose I told you there was a way to save your little brother Mikey from the noose. Suppose I gave you a horse and a gun. Suppose, Mr. Burns. I was to give both you and your young brother Mikey here a pardon. Suppose I said that I could give you the chance to expunge the guilt beneath which you so clearly lay. Suppose I gave you to Christmas. I suppose you tell me what it is I want from you. Hmm? You want me to kill me, brother? I want you to kill your brother. Arthur Burns is a monster. An abomination. You were right to part company with him. To take Mikey with you. What happened at Hopkins Place was unforgivable. I have never seen such a sickening sight. Did you know that that poor woman Eliza Hopkins had a child in her belly? Welcome back, everybody, and I'm joined by a repeat uh, guest. This third time on this show, and I continue to get him to do these really uplifting films like uh, Wake and Fright and Sherpa, uh, and that is Michael Denniston from War Machine vs. Warhorse. So welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. I did have that in mind as I was watching it this morning, a uh, very <clears throat> gray overcast day, and uh, yeah, this one, I would say, I guess there's not as much drinking. Um, <laughs> this I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Are these people healthier in the proposition? I can't really tell. Looks like there's a lot of hard living off screen before we come to these gentlemen. Certainly not Guy Pierce's character because he looks there's something physically wrong with him. He's he's very unwell, I think, uh, and won't last too long after this film, I, I think. But we'll we'll get on to that. Um, so yeah. How dare you say that about <laughs> Guy Pierce? Well, he's 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 really good in this. He really is good. Um, so first of all, as well, this is being released on Christmas. Uh, so Merry Christmas uh, to yourself uh, as we're recording this on the 15th of December. So 10 days away from Christmas. But yes, Merry Christmas and uh, welcome to, to, to joining me for one of the most jovial Australian Christmas films. Um, when I was planning on, I wasn't actually planning on releasing a Christmas episode, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a search to find out what films Australia has that, that are Christmas films. And uh, the most recent pure Christmas film that we had was released in 1998, and it was called Crackers, um, which is a comedy, and it's fine. And then before that, the last one was something like Smiley gets it goes to Christmas or something like that, which was in the 1940s. So it's been That a sounds while. good. Yeah. Why didn't we do that one? Well... 
it's a future episode. Next Christmas, we'll we'll touch okay. on. I got to I got to wait a year to do that one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but then I was thinking, you know what film is based around Christmas? The proposition. <clears throat> the whole the whole crux of this story is that somebody's going to get killed on Christmas um, if somebody else isn't killed before then. That is the whole point of the proposition. So um, I know that you know. John Hillcoat has probably not directed the best films in the last few years. Um, but I'm curious as to what your experience was with the proposition prior to me saying, Hey, do you want to cover this film? It was one that, uh, I guess always kind of got on my nerves because there were multiple people that recommended it to me saying, Hey, this is a movie you'd really like. You've not seen the proposition. You should see it. You should check it out. And it's one that I've had on my shelf in Blu-ray, uh, sealed, for a number of years um i can't remember where i bought it uh so clearly i took their opinions um <laughs> you know to heart to, to buy the damn thing but timber to actually open it and watch it so um thank you i guess for giving me the uh, the opportunity uh, to do so i was more excited about the the christmas angle because i i really didn't know anything about it except australian western that's and guy pierce that's mm-hmm. that is the the only thing but you mentioned John Hillcoat, and I think he's part of the reason I held back on watching it because I've seen his follow-up films and have n- never really been a fan. Like, I, there's been things I've liked about them, but for the most part, I've come down uh, fairly negative on his his output up to this point. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of The Road. I think it's you know a fairly overrated film. I know there's some, pe- some people who love it. Um, Lawless was fine wasn't anything to write home that and i haven't watched triple nine yet but i think you know part of the reason why i have watched these subsequent films is based on the strength of uh the proposition and one of his there was a huge gap between his films um before he did the proposition was in like the 1980s he did a film called ghosts of the civil dead which actually starred nick cave in it and then he took a terence malick like break and then came back with the proposition which is yeah, it's a really, really fantastic film. Um, you know, I, I like it a lot. I loved it when I first saw it, and it had been a while since I f- had rewatched it. And so, rewatching it for this, I had forgotten how it's. You know, it's ninety minutes long, um, and I thought for some reason it was two hours long, and I thought, oh, that's a bit too long. But um, ninety minutes feels just right for this story, and it's. I don't know. It's a really, really gritty, disgusting film, and brutal, and violent and grimy and you know i'm not saying that australian christmases are like this the you know fortunately not that's not the case but uh i think it gives a really good representation of what australian summers are like and i can only imagine what it'd be like to have a christmas in this desperate devastating part of the world uh so yeah it's did you enjoy it were you were you pleased that you finally got around to watching it no, I did not enjoy it. Um, <laughs> which, okay, isn't to say that the film, it isn't to say the film is bad, but I don't, I don't think enjoyable is the word that would come to mind. Yeah. Um, there's certainly a lot of, there are a lot of Western tropes here. There's that sort of ticking clock angle, uh, the you know the proposition itself. Um, and the you know the characters you meet, even the the side characters, um, like uh, John Hurt playing this uh, bounty hunter, uh, who's incredibly 
uh, racist, I guess, is really the only way to put it. Like, that's almost like what he talks about exclusively uh, is the, I guess, how good the white man is uh, compared to everyone else. So, no, it's not, these are not enjoyable people to hang out with, and it's certainly not pleasant. Um, the violence, um, I don't want to say it's excessive, but. It is definitely in your face. Mm. Um, almost any time someone gets shot, they don't even get shot very simply. Like it is, the, like uh, not. It's not Tarantino esque, but it's it's kind of close to that as far as that stylized violence. Um, but what I liked about it is it's not stylized in a way that you want any part of it. Like yeah. you don't. It's not fun in the in the slightest. And uh, so no, Andrew, I don't think this is what I would sit around uh, with the family on Christmas Day and be like, hey, let's have a good time with the proposition. So I, w- I would disagree with you there. No, so unfortunately all my listeners who see this pop up in their feed are, are not going to go, oh, yes, the proposition, that, that's, that is the prime Christmas film. <laughs> yeah, save it for summer, uh, as you said. Let's, let's go for a different non-holiday-specific uh, uh, time frame to watch the proposition. Yeah, I mean... So I I recently watched Die Hard for the very first time, which is a very good film. Um, And, you know, because everybody was like, oh, this is, you know, it's the best Christmas film and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just an action film that happens to take place at Christmas. So because it happens to take place at Christmas, does that then make it a Christmas film? No, not really. Same with the proposition. It's a Western that happens to take place at Christmas. Is it a Christmas film? No, but it's also kind of like, well, we don't have enough of these films and and we certainly don't have enough of these kinds of dark, gritty westerns in Australia because you'd think that a country that is so full of dirt and so full of, you know, vast nothingness that we would be, a, you know, we would have tons of them, but for some reason we don't, um, which is very strange uh, because, yeah, it's such an apt genre for australia and john kill john hillcoat makes a really good job of it and specifically i think uh, nick cave's script is really good too uh the dialogue is really fantastic and and dark and really kind of era specific in the sense that these are uh, people from the uk these these kind of convicts who have gotten free in a way and they're not really British, but they're also not really Australian. They're they're in between. They're like these lost vessels in a way. And I think he manages to capture that really well. Um, so yeah, I think that I think it's really good in that in that regard. Um, is it a great film? Probably not, but it's a it's a really good film for me at least. Well, I really liked the uh, Captain Stanley character played by Ray Winstone, who <clears throat> his whole agenda seems to be taming. Uh, you know, the Wild West, as it were, here in Australia, um, and to get rid of a certain, you know, element to make things more palatable uh, to, for him and his wife, who are strangers land. And this, it's uh, it's sort of interesting to put the idea of gentrification in the the setting of a Western. And that that's the stuff that I really thought was strange, but it seems like something like, oh, this should have been done. A long time ago, and I think you were talking about the runtime. Uh, I, I don't think the the script, you know, it doesn't need to be a three hour epic mm. to have interesting ideas, and maybe even the characters themselves don't even fully explore uh, what they're doing. But I think that in the context of this very simple 
um, I guess it turns into a revenge plot in a way, this, this reunification of these brothers. Uh, I think they do introduce some stuff that you can you can kick around and think about much more so than the characters themselves because they don't have time. They're too busy getting beaten or stabbed or shot, so they're not going to have these uh, these uh, you know political discussions or dialogue about the, their sort of plight in life. And that's that's usually the the best form I think of of films that have those sort of points to make. They don't hit you over the head with it. It's not something unexpected. Uh, certainly not with that that opening sequence of people basically standing and waiting to die as the bullets riddle through this this building. Mm. So, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I want to go to your your point about Christmas movies, though, because <laughs> um, I think I think this one is like other than the fact that yeah they're they're gonna have a hanging on Christmas Day, which uh, somehow tops sitting around the dinner table watching the proposition. I thought that was sort of a curious thing to do to decide to hang a man on Christmas, but. I think, you know, Die Hard, uh, this one, Eyes Wide Shut, is one of my favorite okay. sort of Christmas movies. Uh, they're all about acquiring things in a way. Like, that's that's like the, the general. And I think that's very much what Christmas has been for, for decades. I mean, even going back to something like It's a Wonderful Life, which is very Christmassy, uh, it is about the acquisition of stuff, of property, of wealth. So, yeah, I think definitely the proposition it's like this acquisition of the entire country like who has the, the right to say this is how we're going to live here well there you go geez i i wasn't expecting that uh that's the i think we should probably all right like george costanza right i'm there. out that's it yep i'm done that's it thank you for listening everybody um <laughs> no i think that's a really interesting point though as you're saying you know with captain stanley he's he constantly talks about wanting to civilize the country and wanting to civilize people and you know i will i will make you a normal person and it's obvious that this is a land that well at least that particular part of the world uh or part of australia rather will never really be tamed and really be uh naturalized i guess is the way of putting it um you know which is how he wants it to be done and and it's really frightening as well because he's he's kind of almost just working under the guise of um, David Wenham's character, who I can't remember what his name is, but he's this kind of really... Fletcher. Yeah, this he's he's great. This, this kind of creepy, moustache-twirling kind of guy. Um, and for some reason, and obviously this is really wrong, uh, and I don't know why, but he kind of looks like um, one of the parents in, like... Uh, What's that the, the that kids show with Chucky and uh, Angelica and stuff like that? Um, <laughs> Rugrats. Yeah, Rugrats. That's it. Yeah, he looks like <laughs> one of the parents in that. Um, like Angelica's dad, I think it is. You know, he, that's how he looks, and it's it's <laughs> really kind of creepy and and disturbing. This mustache. Yeah, I was not guy. expecting that. I'm I'm not prepared on my Rugrats research here. I don't have that particular tab open, Andrew. <laughs> Well, I, you know, in my notes here, um, <laughs> these are just the things I come up with when I'm watching the proposition. Um, no wonder it's a Christmas movie for you. <laughs> you put this in after the uh, Rugrats season two DVD comes out. You just followed up with the proposition. Well, that's it. They're tonally very similar. Um, you know, but it's <laughs> it's very creepy how it's kind of this this he's this clean man. And he's the only real kind of clean-shaven, clean-washed man in the town. 
and he's the guy who who decides things and you know makes the directions and stuff like that and it's really frightening because i think it's it's also a look at the way that hierarchies work in the sense that you know he's the the power of the town and being able to demand what things get done and one of the most frightening scenes and horrific scenes uh and certainly when i i watched this in two parts and uh the scene that i had to stop it at because Bernadette couldn't watch it and so i didn't want to put her through watching it again which was the whipping scene and that's a really really disgusting scene because you know it's it gets to a point where the the guy who's doing the whipping of this this poor young guy this young kid he gets up to 38 lashes and the whip is just drenched in blood and then of course he he says i'm not doing it anymore and then throws it off to to fletcher and I love the shot of this this clean man just standing there and then he gets the splash blood on his face. It's just, it kind of goes to show that there is no, nobody's clean in this world. Nobody's, you know, safe and everybody's complicit in what is going on, especially in deciding to hang somebody on Christmas Day, which is, you know, it's the most uncivilized thing. And especially for somebody who is trying to civilize a country, it's a frightening aspect, um, which is which is terrifying. So there's that that aspect of it as well about Christmas, um, the unity of a town in a certain way is really frightening too. So it's yeah, it's about it's about giving, but it's also about taking uh, and receiving. And it's also going to the idea of you know who's touched by a certain way of life or the the, the violence that surrounds these people like. I think that plays out within the the sort of power struggle between the brothers as well, because Guy Pierce is set up as our you know antihero in a way. He's the one that, especially by the end of the film, does make a, a decision that, that that's that's about that's enough. Like that he can he can really only stomach so much, and it's after a great personal loss for him uh, that he comes to that decision and uh, his. <laughs> You know the this brother of his that he's sent out to kill that's referred to as the dog man, which is a pretty badass mm-hmm. um i guess insult slash honor to be called that um of arthur uh has become i I don't know if he's the the only honest one in the film or not because he's just very comfortable with the way of things, and uh I think that's something that I was trying to debate in my head when after the film was over with. Uh, on this beautiful morning, good, great way to start my day is um, it's obvious that you don't want to see Arthur, you know, instruct his his uh, you know henchman to to rape uh, this woman or to to beat a man. But there's there's a lot that scene that you're talking about the, the whipping. There's a lot that the civilized and structured violence is just as horrific as the dog man's. I don't know, a more animalistic or barbaric way of dealing with things. And at times his is just, it's far more honorable because he's, I guess, honest about it. He's mm-hmm. honest about what he wants out of it. As far as if you wrong him, then he just wants you eliminated in a way. And he wants to be left to do what he wants to do in peace. And the country sort of pulls him back. Civilization pulls him back to, to commit these acts in a way. So I think, I think the, like, like a lot of great Westerns, um, you know the morality of it between all the characters is very conflicted, and they're very compromised people. So it's a, it's a really interesting film, and 
going back to the runtime to pack all that in in such a short span. Um, I appreciate it not only because it gave me time to, you know, go back and watch Die Hard, a much better Christmas film, of course. But uh, no, it's just it get, it's impressive. It's impressive the amount of ideas that they put in here, and and it's swallowed down with a lot of humor. Like there's lots yeah. of parts that I found myself chuckling, even though it is very <laughs> vile and disgusting film as far as the violence goes. Yeah, and I think the key is a well as well about Arthur and Danny Houston here is great. I I've never really been a huge Danny Houston fan um, because I don't think he's ever really been able to top this performance. I think he is really, really something here, and you know there he is aware of the violence that he he causes, and in a way there's there's that shot of him where he asks his brother, he says, you know, why don't you ever stop me, Charlie? And there's that kind of it's almost this pained sound in his mouth, in his you know throat when he says it, because he's kind of like, well, you know, I, I do enjoy doing this, but I know it's wrong and I know mm-hmm. it's, it's not what I should be doing, but it's the way of life that I live. And I find that really interesting. The other aspect I find really interesting too, is that in Australia, at least we have this love affair with outlaws and uh, with, with people who, challenge authority and stuff like that so i'm thinking of um ned kelly uh, chopper um and for australian listeners we've got films like mr reliable and uh you know and the castle as well in a way which are all films that have the man or an outlaw or somebody who's against the law challenging the law in a way and they're mostly characters who we as an audience, as the audience, are supposed to admire and and cheer on, and certainly in in the Ned Kelly stories, it's the case, and and in some ways in Chopper, it's the case, but in here, it's one of the few depictions of Australian bush rangers. Well, these guys aren't bush rangers per se, but they are outlaws. Um, you know, it's one of the few depictions where these are generally terrifying people that you don't want to succeed and even somebody like guy pierce's charlie who you know is kind of the conduit to this story we sympathize with his plight he is still a terrible person because of of his complicit nature in in everything that's gone on and and the same with uh, ray winston's captain stanley as well he's he's a complicit character because we sympathize with what in some ways we sympathize what with what he's trying to do but he could have stopped this right at the beginning and it wouldn't have gone on as bad as it did. And I find that really interesting because it's a unique entity in that regard. And I don't know if American cinema uh, is has that kind of love affair with, with criminals in the same way, like they're to be admired, possibly, possibly not. I haven't done enough research about it, but I do find it curious in Australia that us as a convict-born country... Um, still find those kinds of characters really admirable in a way to challenge the the man, stick it up to the man. Yeah, I think it's the same in uh, in America. Um, it, it it plays out among different genres. I mean, you have the early uh, gangster you know, pictures uh, where I think that even though all those characters, because of the uh, the I believe of the Hayes Code, had to come had to meet their end and get their comeuppance, you got to enjoy uh, them and their success. And I think that's what Americans admire, success. There's, you look at something like Wolf of Wall Street, mm. and DiCaprio's not playing someone that anyone would say is, oh, he's a good guy. But because he 
gets away with it and gets a lot of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> I think that American audiences do admire that, and they they get a thrill of in living in that world for a little bit of time, mm. much longer period of time for. <clears throat> the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, longer than the proposition, uh, I believe. But yeah, um, yeah, I think it's it's there's something that you can live vicariously through people who have a degree of freedom that we don't have, but they pay the price for it. Obviously, like it's 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 a life that you know. If you look at the uh, the dental plan here uh, for these outlaws, not that good. So yeah, that's uh, it's uh, the hits and, and misses there of this lifestyle. We'll, we'll talk about the makeup for a second, actually, because um, one of the things I find really interesting is that you know, Guy Pierce was really heavily invested in this character. He he loved this character quite a lot, and essentially, um, you know, one of the things that he and John Hillcoat found really frustrating is that period films they get the the costumes correct sometimes, but you know, the, the makeup and the teeth of people in these situations always, you know, they're, they're, there's a, a, was it cognitive dissonance? Is that correct? Is that the right term? I think it is. Um, where essentially the, the teeth are bright and white and sparkly and everything and they're in this <laughs> disgusting place. And it's like, well, okay, maybe if you didn't spend so much money on toothbrush, you'd be able to, you know, not live in caves and stuff. But here, the teeth are disgusting and and gritty and what you'd expect people who live out in the bush eating, you know, disgusting food to be eating and, and what they t- what they would look like. And that's why I think, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, I, I think it's really impressive that, you know, Guy Pearce looks jaundiced in this film. He looks unwell and he looks like somebody who is, you know, the country is almost eating him from the inside out. That's the impression I get, that this is such a devastating place to be that he's, yeah, he's essentially just, it's not pleasant for him. And and we're seeing that come through in the way that he looks. And it's not just him that has bad teeth. I mean, John Hurt's got bad teeth and uh, everybody in this film's got bad teeth. And I think that helps so much. It's not a big thing where if they had normal teeth, you wouldn't be like, ah, this film is fucked. You know, it, it doesn't work for me because they had nice teeth, but it just adds that little bit extra to the film to make it just that touch more believable. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good touch of a good director. And it's, it's impressive that they managed to do that. Um, I've got a, uh, sort of a semi, I guess, Rugrats style reference here. Um, because I'm watching it and just listening to you talk uh, about that that sort of connection we make about the, the situation the characters are in, but those small little details as it, like you said, if they've, you know, pearly white teeth, you you still realize, Oh, you're watching handsome actors and, uh, sort of, uh, Revenant style with DiCaprio oh, yeah. where it's like someone who's, um, living a, uh, a life of despair after this sort of near death experience, uh, because it's DiCaprio. I, I don't know. I don't feel like that film ever pulls it off. Um, because it doesn't have those small details, and I actually don't like the style of that film. Of uh, when I first watched it, I was like, "This just does not fit." The, the direction here is very showy, but it does not fit the story that they're trying to tell. Mm. And there are elements in the proposition that start to veer that direction. As it's very stylized, it does have a lot of sort of this almost music video style quality to it, as mm. far as this the you know, the score and. Just the the way it relays information um, is not 
fitting with a genre of western in a good way like it's not it's not it does not have the same pace of uh, what you expect from a western um but yeah like the uh the teeth thing you know i get i get like a sick pleasure out of watching the show survivor on cbs where you're watching like it's such a that's such an american thing because it's a game show where you're watching people starve themselves for money and you watch them have competitions for food <laughs> like in there and you're seeing people who do have you know they have uh a great dental care and i'd, I'd read before um that a lot of the contestants get their teeth whitened before they go on the show. Uh, and they get, they get their chests like they get the, uh, electrolysis, um, especially for the, the men on the show who know they're going to be shirtless, who like to have, uh, a shaved chest. They do all this upkeep ahead of time, knowing that they won't be allowed to, if they're on this Island for 30 days to still look as good as possible. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's something where it's a, a game show that is, predicated on seeing people suffer for money and mm. but people still want to look very good while they're suffering on camera for our amusement so that's i don't know so yeah good on you proposition for the the yellow teeth well <laughs> hand yeah, clap for that exactly and that's the thing is that you know actors like ray winston and and guy pierce are not vain uh they they are not concerned about their looks and even uh Emily Watson as well. She's, I think, we, who I think is fantastic here. I, I really like her, but she's also not vain about how she looks too. And and that's really, you know, for these kinds of uh, Hollywood actors, I guess um, it's a it's a great thing. And I mean, granted, these aren't you know Leonardo DiCaprio uh, level kind of um, big stars, but I think that they're they're a little bit more grounded and they deliver really great performances. Um, and certainly, well, I mean, sorry, you go. Guy Pierce is extremely handsome, as you will know. I'm a huge fan <laughs> of his his looks, um, and, but he is someone that has kind of always gone out of his way to just look slightly goofy in films. Like if if he's playing a, a part that requires a, a certain aesthetic, he goes for it. He doesn't really maintain a consistent. Uh, Guy Pierce handsomeness throughout his filmography, and I, I've always appreciated that about him. Even in his sort of, I guess, American breakout in L.A. Confidential, he's like playing the dork character. He's mm. playing the the nerd that is sort of made fun of by these much more masculine macho men. And it's, I, you know, I, I would never see Tom Cruise doing something like that, like or allowing himself to be someone who's pushed around on screen when. Both both these men have been blessed with sort of these matinee idol looks, and yeah, Guy Pierce always goes for it. Yeah, and that's the thing is he's he is such a great actor because he's he's delivered some really varied roles. And you know, if you'd said to me that the guy that was in uh, the Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert and one of his big breakout films in Australia at least was dating the enemy, both really polar opposite to the characters that he represents here in the Proposition and also in The Rover too. Which I think is a great film, um, very underrated, and one of my favorites. Yeah, it's just—I mean—that's an episode, a future episode that I have to do. But I think it's—it's it's a really wonderful representation of the talent of somebody like Guy Pearce because he's—he's he's not afraid to to push himself into darker areas and and certainly you know challenge himself as an actor too and. One of the things which I found really interesting is that the reading about how the scenes between him and John Hurt, which were filmed in uh, the scene where John Hurt gets killed and also the scene where um, 
there in this tin shed, which was filmed in the middle of the night because it was too hot. It, you know, they they filmed sort of in the summertime, and um, the temperature was getting up to forty five, forty six degrees in the in the shade in the daytime. So it was still about thirty eight degrees at nighttime in this hot tin shed, and. The dedication that the two actors have to each other is that, you know, the director basically said, hey, you can take off your clothes in between, you know, when you're when we're shooting John Hurt's side so you don't get too hot. And Guy Pearce was like, well, that's going to ruin the believability for him. And John Hurt said exactly the same thing. And I think they had to have medics on, on hand because, you know, John Hurt's not a young man um, and it would be a terrible thing if he you know, cocked it in the middle of the desert. Um, Are you telling me Guy Pierce tried to kill John Hurt? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I don't know how I feel about that, Guy Pierce. <laughs> it's it's not enough to make up for his music yet. So, but <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> um, but you know, that's that's impressive. It's dedication to his work. The other thing I think think is really interesting too is that even though it's a throwaway scene. Um, there's a shot of Danny Houston laying with the the dog that is essentially his his canine companion out in the bush. And one of the things I found really fascinating was the fact that he's like, well, if I'm this mythical figure that they, they say that I am, then I need to display that I have this relationship with this dog. So every time that he wasn't on screen, he was spending with that dog to build up the relationship just to get it to the point where the dog would lay comfortably with his head on his chest. And that's the thing I think is really interesting is that, you know, often in films with where you see people with companion animals, dogs or cats or whatever, um, you know, they the dogs will be sitting far away on their bed next to a fire or something like that. And I'm sure that's the case. But for me, all of my dogs tend to sit on me if I'm sitting down watching TV or in relaxing or at least very, very close to me. And I'm not sure if that's the same for you, but I, I mine's on my feet right now. Well, there you as go. you say, that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, it's interesting uh, attention to detail that, you know, just to display the relationship there of it's hard to make that kind of closeness feel real when it's fake. And so he went to the effort of making sure that it, it came across as real. And I, I, th- I found that really interesting. And it's it's nice like that. It's There's a lot of small attention to detail things, which I could go on and on and on about with this one, but I won't do because, um, you know, I don't want to obviously make this too long of an episode. But it, the behind-the-scenes aspects of this film are really interesting, to say the least. Well, um, I'd say it's doubly important because it's the setting that our characters find themselves in usually are, it's very sparse as far as the amount of detail. Um, I mean, you have beautiful shots of the landscape, but as far as their, yeah, I mentioned eyes wide shut earlier. Uh, it's pretty far removed from that as far as the, the sets that they're involved with. We do not have these, you know, Stanley Kubrick going over every book on a, a bookshelf that's out of focus uh, in, you know, the pool hall room with uh, Tom Cruise. So I don't, yeah, I think you have those little, things in there that just build up uh, a world and a life for these characters that goes unsaid but it's it's very necessary and it's something that if it's not there you probably i don't think you would immediately put your finger on it as far as what's when something feels off uh but there are a lot of films that don't do that where you're just like ah, this just doesn't 
I don't know. There's just something that doesn't it doesn't have a buy-in to the the character and the reality that they're trying to to sell me. And uh, this film does an excellent job of that with uh, with very little. Um, doesn't quite have the eyes wide shut, you know, budget or attention, but almost, almost. Well, I can imagine if John Hillcote was going on in his uh, 200th take out in the desert, then definitely, um, you know, John Hurt would be dead, um, and it wouldn't be Guy <laughs> Pierce's fault. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it would be. It would be. Yeah, you know, Stanley Kubrick would certainly have have killed him. Uh, which I think in that that film he didn't kill Harvey Keitel, but he ran him off. That and Jennifer Jason Lee too. So mm. um, I, I wanted to bring up Triple Nine just real quick because that's one where I think the details d- did not fit at all because I believe they filmed in Atlanta and it's set in Atlanta, but it doesn't feel. Like it was meant to be set in that world. It feels like it was meant to be set in L.A. And it, because of tax credits, they retrofit it to Atlanta. And that's one where it's something that did stick out to me as I was watching it. I'm like, this just doesn't, I don't know, there's something that just feels off here. Um, and that's, you know, maybe that's when Hilco, you know, came over to the States and started filming with a, a different, you know, budget that he's operating under. But uh, that world just... There, there's too many connections you have to make with uh, Kate Winslet's character in this this gangster environment uh, in Atlanta that as an American I'm like I just I don't know this doesn't doesn't seem right this just doesn't seem accurate I don't know not that I'm any great consultant on the great city of Atlanta because I I've despised my time there um, but yeah I don't I don't know <laughs> shout out to all your Atlanta listeners <laughs> I was going to say are you just envious that you know they got the 1996 Olympics and Kentucky is yet to have, <laughs> have the grace no of- <laughs> no god please no um yeah I guess as a you know a taxpayer in Kentucky I don't think that's the economic you know boom that we need to uh to get things going here I would just prefer La La Land just open please that's that's what I want I would just I would like some better movies I don't want the Olympics coming anywhere near me well, well, that's that's fair. That that is very very fair. Um, Has Perth ever had to suffer through that, or is that just it was Sydney? Right? Was that two thousand? Yeah, Sydney. Yeah, please. <laughs> Perth is never stay on the other side. Perth is <laughs> never going to get considered for anything like that <laughs> whatsoever. If the Olympics ever come to Perth, uh, I will come and visit you. I will come. I will <laughs> travel with my stupid, uh, you know, USA flag shorts <laughs> and tank top. And be the ultimate tourist there, and and your slogan will be at least it's not Kentucky, because <laughs> we wouldn't have it. But Perth, I'm willing to jump on a plane to come see these things. That's Can't it. wait to watch all the swimming and the tennis. Do they have tennis? I don't know. I'm, I'm a horrible patriot, as you can tell. <laughs> we we have tennis. We we actually do pretty good tennis here in Perth. Um, it, well, do good tennis. We do. We, <laughs> We do better tennis than we do English, that's for sure. <laughs> it's the same in Kentucky, and we suck at tennis. <laughs> well, that's it. Um, so I guess before we wrap it up, do we have any do – do you – not we collectively. We haven't conversed before this as to what our favorite scene is together. Um, that's the, this point in the episode where we ask those kinds of things, even though this is very um, – I haven't stuck to my usual format of of going into you know script and production values and all that. It's a good film, uh, but the one thing, it, yeah, I will ask: uh, what's your favorite scene for this film? The uh, the <laughs> That's annoyance. That's a way of going about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the annoyance on uh, Guy Pierce's face is sort of exasperation. 
when he's still playing uh, his brother when they're sitting watching this this beautiful uh, you know, setting sun on this on this rock, uh, and he does have an opportunity to kill him. Uh, but he's talking about their younger brother, which is the very reason for this situation that he's trying to save him from the Christmas Day hanging. And this, the reason he's not there is because this girlfriend, this this Molly character that mm-hmm. Arthur keeps, he keeps messing up. And I was trying to figure out, I was like, is he deliberately messing up trying to catch his brother in a lie because he doesn't trust Charlie? And I, I thought that it was, it's not only humorous because you're, you're just watching two guys have this sort of almost nothing chit chat conversation, but I thought there was, it was like so strangely threatening in this like beautiful, like scenery with it. And it's, it's, uh, that, that's a scene that even if I didn't feel like watching the film again, I would pull up just to watch that, uh, just in the interplay between the two actors. So yeah, that, that was clearly my, that was my favorite moment, the standout moment for me. Yeah, it is. A, it is a good moment. Um, and certainly those kinds of dialogue moments are really, really interesting and exciting because they give, good actors something tangible and really you know really impressive to work with and i i enjoy that aspect of of nick cave's script um for me besides the ending i think the climax is really fantastic and you know i think obviously it's excessively violent but it works so well and especially given that a lot of the violence from that particular moment happens off screen um as Arthur takes um, the captain off to the other room and we see Ray Winston go into the other room with him and then the next time that we see him, he's covered in blood and cuts and everything like that. So we're only left with our imagination as to what happened to him, even though we've seen what happens to his wife. And I think that's a really, it's a really powerful moment and it's certainly it's it's a great terrifying moment too because of the the fact that you know when that that terrible rape occurs as well the the brother starts singing which is just even even more frightening and and i i don't know it's not it's not a scene that i like but it's certainly a scene that i think exemplifies everything that this film is trying to say and trying to do and i think it's a yeah it's powerful not really a scene that you you go hey can't wait until you get to the climax you know that climax you're gonna love it it's great was that enjoyable for you andrew you love the (laughs) the 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 assault and the the violence there well you know it's it's the thing have your christmas ham in front of you as you're watching this i I was thinking more of turkey leg but hey ham ham will do ham will do it's okay the the other thing I, I like this scene, the the line of dialogue that I, I really like is um when that particular brother and whose name I've forgotten uh, at the moment um I can't remember but the guy who does all the singing and stuff like that um he's they're sitting on uh, the horses and the Aboriginal partner is there as well and the line of dialogue is uh, Arthur says something about misanthropes and this guy says what's a misanthrope and the, the Aboriginal guy says, some fucker who hates every other fucker. And then he responds saying, I didn't ask you, you black bastard, which is essentially doing what a misanthrope is, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious because it's just like, okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and it's that dark comedy as well that really, it really sticks. I think it's, it's difficult to pull off, but I think he manages to do it. And Sure is pretty. Oh. You never get your fill of nature, Samuel, to be surrounded by it, to be stilled. It, it saddles the heart, the mountains, 
the trees, the endless plains, the moon, the mirror, the stars. Every man can be made quiet and complete. Even the lowliest misanthrope, the most wretched of sinners. What's a misanthrope, Arthur? Some bugger who fucking hates every other bugger. Hey, I didn't ask you, you black bastard. He's right, Sam. A misanthrope is one who hates humanity. Is that what we are? Misanthropes? Good Lord, no. We're a family. There's also the the last line of that sequence where they write off where uh, Danny Houston says, we're not misanthropes, we're family. And then they just ride off together. And it's just, there's just, a, it's like, a, it is, it's a very strange film as far as the, the characters. It's not, uh, it's, it's playing in that Western sandbox, but uh, it's like if everyone was the, the ugly from the good, the bad and the ugly. It's like, that's all, that's every character is that sort of, they're a little bit just off tilt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the question that I ask you at the end of these uh, great episodes like Wake and Fright and Sherpa, uh, is is this a film that you would recommend to people to watch? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you, you caught me the last time I was on for Sherpa and you said you're the only one who's ever said that. at the end of the, And I, I'd forgotten I'd said about Wake and Fright, but I'm like, you know, that's not saying that these are... You know, because I really liked Wake and Fright quite a bit. Um, they're not bad films, but I think it's, especially the ones you're offering up to me are just so. There's just so much death and just violence and, and these, these things. Um, Sherpa is probably the one I would recommend. I guess the most out of the three I've been on for the proposition. Uh, there would be certain people, I guess, in my circle of friends where I'm like, "Hey, check this out." Um, but generally speaking, no. Around uh, you know, when I go visit the family on Christmas, I'm not going to be bringing this Blu-ray with me. I'll, I'll keep it at home just for me. So, yeah, I'd say certain people could handle it, but I think for the most part, uh, I think it would be very off-putting to uh, a general audience. Yeah, I did think when I asked you to do this episode as well. I the part of the only reason was I listened to your episode like from ages ago where you did a, an episode on the road. Uh, it was one of the films that you discussed and mm-hmm. you said, oh, I haven't seen the proposition. I'm like, well, I should see if Mike wants to do the proposition. And then after I asked you and you'd said, yes, I'm like, I wonder if he thinks that, you know, what I think of him as a person, because I keep <laughs> on asking him to do these dark, <laughs> depressing films. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I don't know. I keep waiting for a, a comedy to come my way. So I guess that's why I gravitated towards the uh, the Molly exchange so much. I'm like, oh, please, some levity. Yes, please. And uh, even then, I'm, I'm expecting someone to die in the next second. So, yeah, I don't know what you think of me. I don't know what you think of Kentucky, really. I don't know what sort of lifestyle you think we, we have here. But, yeah, whenever you, you have something that's a romantic comedy, um, I would sure love to do that. I would love to <laughs> love a change of pace. Well, I, I would actually. I'm on that on that topic. I will actually do dating the enemy in the future, and because you are a Guy Pierce fan, I'll I'll get you on because it's a okay. really solid film. And I have my my fainting couch already prepared just it. for that. I'm prepared to swoon. That's it. Um, and I'm sure you'll probably just say eyes wide shut. But I'm curious uh, if there's a film. It doesn't have to be a Christmas film, but is there a film that you would think is is similar to this that you would recommend people check out? Um, even though I don't know why you'd say Ice Watch Chat, because, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, just if I wanted to have, like, I guess an offbeat uh, Christmas movie, uh, yeah, Ice Watch Chat um, is, is a go to. It's one that I do strangely sort of watch uh, around this time period, but 
doesn't have a whole lot to do with the the proposition uh, and the the setting. Um, I would, you know, the one that came to mind, and I mean, it's it's not a, a perfect fit, um, but uh, a simple plan, which is this sort of uh, pact made between. Uh, Brothers, um, that is a, uh, a crime film. I think it's Sam Raimi's best film. Uh, a lot of people probably would go with uh, Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness, but uh, that's one where we saw someone, a filmmaker, put away all of his sort of stylistic uh, traits, his fallback, and did something very grounded and serious. And um, I would say, you know, as much as I made fun of you for giving me stuff that's just dark. Uh, that one is uh, is darker than the proposition because I don't remember almost I don't think there's hardly any humor in that in that film. Uh, it plays it, far, it plays far more as like a sort of a family melodrama in a way. But yeah, that's that's the one that sort of came to mind as far as this uh, brothers betraying each other um, in a way. So yeah, a simple plan. I don't I don't actually ever hear that one talked about a lot. Like I'm trying to think if I've even heard it discussed on a movie podcast. So no, I don't think uh, so. And yeah, and certainly. When when it came out, it was certainly a film that I watched a lot. Uh, I think it's a great film and really an underrated film. It's not one that's been talked about enough. Billy Bob Thornton's performance in it is fantastic. He was nominated oh, for an Oscar. Um, yeah. And Bill Paxton is, you know, predictably great as well. Um, but yeah, I think it is certainly an underrated Sam Raimi film. And, um, you know, for, for people who haven't listened to your episode on which features you discussing Evil Dead 2, uh, you actually said that The Ninth Gate was better than Evil Dead 2 on that episode. No, no, no. Hold on. Now, I, <laughs> just to be fair, I, was, I produced a podcast which said that, but there was a two-to-one vote, and I was the one screaming and pulling what little hair I have left out when I heard this from my two idiot co-hosts on that episode. Um, who, yeah, we're just, I don't know. I don't know if they just decided to play a hipster card, but it's like they were bored with Evil Dead 2 and all its sort of place and cult film history. So, yeah, they stupidly went with the ninth gate. But you can hear me yell at them about it if you can find that episode. I don't remember what that was. Was that the Babadook? Is that what's, uh, oh, I, think I think that's what it was. I think, I think it, was, it was, yeah, because it was Possessed Books. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Um, and you can hear me hate on children with that, where... I agree with that that horrid creature with his top hat that it's time to take that kid out, stop his screaming and yapping, and let the uh, the mother use her vibrator in peace. Thank God. That was that's what I got out of the Babadook. <laughs> that's which is fair, and we'll be covering the Babadook on a on a future episode as well. Not uh, I won't be asking uh, yourself to be to be coming on because it's um, no, because that's really the only insight I have. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's that was it. I just I just shot my load there, so you can you can play that clip. That's that is my one and only thought on the Babadook. Yes. So yeah, definitely. Um, for for people listening uh, who haven't already see, sought you out, um, do seek out Mike on his show War Machine versus Warhorse. Um, and yeah, well, uh, you, yeah, you can pimp your Twitter handle if you want, but I know how much you like <laughs> to be bothered on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, I respond to nice mentions. If you compliment me, I will tweet. Um, and if you don't, which since it's the internet, that rarely happens. Uh, we just, you know, we don't we don't speak to one another. But I'm at War Machine Horse. Uh, I usually pimp out uh, now my Instagram feed because it actually serves a practical purpose, unlike Twitter, uh, where I post uh, sort of preview images of films that I'm currently watching for 
upcoming episodes. And you can uh, you can listen to War Machine versus Warhorse on followingfilms.com or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, I guess your pod player of choice. Such enthusiasm there. Such enthusiasm. <laughs> well, that's you know that's the reason I stopped doing intros uh, to my podcast. So if you listen to a newer episode, whoever you are, uh, that that rare converted listener, um, you'll listen and just I just play the the intro music and then the trailer and drop you into the discussion into the Skype call because it's I, I would listen to myself in editing and I would just like man I just sound miserable like this is a horrible way. this you don't put the part at the top of the show where you sound like you want to kill yourself on every episode. So I just stopped doing it because I just, I'm just not very enthusiastic about uh, promoting my podcast, but I am enthusiastic about talking movies because I've done it enough fucking times at this point. So yeah, please listen to the show. That's, that sounds great, right? That was, that was good. That, that's great. Good, uh, yeah. yeah. Do, do I, have- I think I'm going to, I'm going to forward that clip to all the other podcasts and be like, Hey, I've got a really, really good promo spot right here <laughs> where I talk about killing myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's one way to get listeners please listen otherwise <laughs> my existence is useless that has uh, taken patreon to the extreme right there that's, that's it that's i don't it. need money i need hope <laughs> that's what i need well yeah exactly exactly and so i guess because this is this episode is coming out on christmas do you have any um you know last words of hope and and cheer uh, for our listeners, if they're listening on Christmas Day, um, to spread or anything like that, um, it's a big ask. Jeez. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> After this year, what? <laughs> yeah, I I guess is I don't know if that's the hope because I see a lot of people saying like, oh God, 2016 can't be over fast enough. But you know, here in America, we have President Elect Trump, and so I'm you know, you might as well just say the next four years. Um, I don't know. My small hope on Christmas Day, if this is coming out on the 25th, is that I'll be able to excuse myself at some point and uh, go watch a movie. That's like a tradition that uh, my dad and I uh, had when I was a kid. We would always go out, sneak our way out, and go see like a 10 o'clock showing, the last showing of the day on Christmas. So uh, that's my hope, and I I think I'll be able to accomplish it. So I'm just going to keep it small. So I hope you watch a good movie on Christmas Day. How's that? We can't solve. We can't solve. The, uh, electoral college problems or you know the red states so uh, hopefully you can make your way to the movies and see something good that, that's the best way to finish this episode so thank you again for being on here and uh, we will see you all on the next episode of The Last New Wife Thanks for listening to this episode of The Last New Wave. You can find uh, previous episodes and other episodes of our show, AB Film Review, on abfilmreview.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Last New Wave or listen to the, or follow the other show, AB Film Review, at AB Film Review on both Facebook and Twitter. Hey, if you want to also give us a Christmas favour, you could leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Be very welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, Till then, we'll be back uh, sometime during January with an episode on Lucky Miles. So till then, uh, thanks again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details. 
powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.